All right, if you could turn to Acts 16. We're going to finish up that chapter today. And then uh, next week we start Philippians. And uh, for those of you who uh, haven't been here the last couple of weeks, the reason we're doing Acts 16 is to prepare for Philippians, uh, to get the context uh, in terms of the planting, the origination of that church, and it reveals a lot of actually what, what Paul is going to be addressing in the midst of Philippians. So there is a method to my supposed madness. Okay, We're looking at uh, 35 through 40 this morning. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent uh, to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, And have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No! Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we in the midst of this would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope through the Scriptures, that the Spirit would enable us to trust Him as He is presented to us through these same Scriptures. Amen. Last week, uh, I mentioned Andrew Brunson. For those of you who weren't here and haven't followed the news, he is an EPC pastor. And, of course, the EPC stands for Everyone's Presbyterian Church. Um <laughs> That's a little seminary joke. Don't worry about that. Um, but uh, he's a guy I've met uh, while they were raising funds to build a building in Turkey for their uh, their congregation. Uh, had a chance to to meet him, um, and so there are a lot of churches that partnered with the Brunsons in the bringing of the gospel to a place like Turkey where it is currently essentially illegal to be a Christian, to proselytize from their perspective. He's in prison now, uh, accused of espionage, accused of terrorism, accused of somehow working with the Kurds to try and overthrow the government of Turkey. These things aren't true. He still has partners. And the gospel, he has a denomination and uh, multiple denominations and large portions of the evangelical community that continue to pray for him and his release. There are many that have uh, churches that have called fasts 
prior to his trial recently, uh, interceding on his behalf that he would be set free. As we think about Paul sitting in this jail in Philippi, I kind of wonder, what was going on? We don't know what was happening. We know from earlier places in Acts, for instance, uh, when Peter was in prison, there's a, there's this one instance when he's set free unexpected, uh, unexpectedly, and he goes back to where the disciples were meeting, uh, the rest of the disciples, and he finds that there were these people praying for his release. And they were shocked, actually, that God released him. Okay, so oftentimes those who partner with you in the gospel will also be partnering with you in your deliverance in the midst of difficulties. We see that. We don't see exactly what was happening in Philippi, however. But let's let's talk about partners in the gospel. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus provides partners in and for the gospel. But first I want to start with uh, what some might perceive as the bad news. I don't necessarily perceive it as the bad news. But the government is not our partner in the gospel. Now, I have to say that because of a long history. (laughs) As the church has struggled to understand its relationship to the government, and as the government has struggled for many years as well to understand its relationship to the church. This is not something that uh, is new and novel The difficulty existed within the early church, as we see here in the book of Acts. These people don't know what to do with the church. This continued up until the time of Constantine. There were waves of persecution that took place at the hands of the Roman emperors, as well as local sorts of uh, persecutions that broke out as well. But when Constantine legitimized Christianity as an acceptable religion, things shifted a little bit. Christians began to come into the government and they were able to do so openly. And so part of what ended up taking place is the government beginning to think that it was still over the church, but for the church. The Nicene Council was called by Constantine to settle questions about the doctrine of who Jesus is. Was he just a man or was he also God? And so we see a pattern at times of, of secular or governmental leaders taking responsibility to oversee things that take place in the church. But then we see some pushback from people like Pope Gregory the Great, thinking that they had the power to install kings and they saw the church as above the government. And what government wants to be below the church? And so there's this tension, this struggle that plays out throughout the course of history between the church and the state. Not an easy thing. That, I think, might give you a framework, as I, at least as I think through some of what this text indicates. We see that Paul and Cyrus, opposed by the government at that point, remain in jail. 
we see that they have improved conditions because of the jailer's conversion. And so maybe I'm wrong, but I think of The Godfather and other organized crime films. Someone inevitably ends up in prison and they have it easy. You know, they've got the minimum security spot and they're sitting with all of their buddies and they're able to bring in steak and lobster and, and just yuck it up and have, have some wine. They're not normal prisoners. And now Paul and Cyrus, Silas are not part of the organized crime, but right now they're in good with the jailer and they're living better than they, perhaps they should be living. But the morning comes. And with the morning comes word that the magistrates have had enough, so to speak. The message is rather short, summarized as, let those men go. The rulers wanted peace and order. And because they have publicly punished and imprisoned Paul and Silas, uh, they think they now have peace and order. Now, let's not be too hard on them. That's the government's job, to provide peace and order. And sometimes they are like parents. Okay, kids? Recognize that there are moments when your parents are tired and they don't, they're not really too concerned about who did what to whom. They just want peace and order, otherwise known as quiet. <laughs> right? That's the government. They weren't concerned about who did what. They're just concerned that there was conflict. And they wanted it ended. And they wanted it over with. And that was their goal. And their goal seems to have been achieved. Because there's no longer a riot taking place in the center of town. And so they think it's okay now to release this Paul guy and this Cyrus, uh, Silas guy. I don't know why I keep wanting to goof up his name. The tempers have gone down. The men have been punished. They think that they're duly warned by this experience. And they just want to let them go. And hope that they've learned their lesson. And don't seek to, just, to uh, subvert those Roman customs. But Paul isn't having any of that. If I'm Paul, part of me just wants to say, thank you, sir, I'm out of here. But Paul does not heed the advice of the jailer who says, depart in peace. He says, no, I'm staying. I'm not going to leave jail the way they want me to leave jail. I'm not going to sneak out of jail, you know, without a commotion here, because there's a problem that has emerged. Paul says they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, and thrown us into prison. There is an injustice that has been done. And Paul now wants this injustice to be dealt with. Now, for us Americans, we would probably say the mere fact that they have been beaten publicly without a trial and thrown into prison is in and of itself an injustice. And unfortunately, in that day and time, it wasn't. The injustice is, as Paul says, that they are men who are Roman citizens. 
precisely because they were citizens, they had rights that non-citizens didn't have. And one of those rights that they had is they could not have a confession beaten out of them. They could not be interrogated in these enhanced sort of ways as we see taking place earlier in this chapter. If they were to be beaten, there had to be a trial first. Okay? Remember, this is the Roman Empire. They've taken over other nations. Okay? Simply because you're within the borders of the Roman Empire does not make you a citizen of the Roman Empire. Okay? That's why it was so significant that Philippi was a colony. The people who were there were, or who lived there, were Roman citizens. Okay? Paul was an outsider. They didn't know he was a Roman citizen. But so they treated him like the hoi polloi, the the filthy unwashed uh, around them, and they punished him without a trial. There was no trial. There was no truth-seeking. There's no partnership or joining together in any of this. There was simply the public punishment and humiliation. If they were partners with anyone, it was with the syndicate that owned the slave girl. That's who they were partners in. They just wanted the economy to keep going. Roman citizens thrown into prison. In other words, those magistrates broke the law. They did something they weren't supposed to do. Paul, Roman citizen, seems strange when you think about this rabbi from Tarsus who spent most much of his time in Palestine. And yet, as you see in Acts 22, uh, it also shows up in Acts 25, but the tribune a- answered Paul and said, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So some became citizens by living in a colony. Some became citizens because they purchased it. They paid a lot of money. And some were citizens because they were born into it. Paul was born into his citizenship. And citizenship has benefits. Like no, not being tortured and no false imprisonment. Now, this kind of raises a question for those of us who think about the text. Did Paul inform them of this? Some, like Calvin, seem to think that Paul tried to inform them, but the noise of the crowd was too loud. I'm really not sure if that is really the case, precisely because when Paul makes his charges against the magistrates, he doesn't say, and you didn't listen to me when I told you I was a Roman citizen. Now we have a quandary. They've done the wrong thing, but they didn't necessarily know they were doing the wrong thing, if that makes sense to you. But the consequences for them doing the wrong thing is that Philippi could lose its status as a colony. 
personally, the magistrates themselves could also be severely punished. So this is a serious oops that takes place right here. This is not a small matter. And so Paul says, you did all of this publicly. You accused us without evidence. You punished us. You imprisoned us all publicly. And now you want us to, to want to send us out without telling people we're not guilty. So that's the issue. Paul wants public vindication. A vindication that is as public as the accusations were against them. He wants this injustice addressed, not merely hushed by more injustice, kind of scooting you out and hoping that nothing will ever be made known of this. But I want us to see, I want us to understand that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that salvation is available to sinners because Christ has become man in the incarnation, that Christ has fully obeyed the laws of God for sinners, that Jesus has died in the place of sinners, was raised on the third day, and now if you trust in Him, if you turn from your sin, you are able to enjoy salvation, that this thing, this gospel, also creates a tension between the maintenance of order and the challenging of the status quo. And we see both of these in chapter 16. Because earlier, Paul had maintained order. But now, Paul is challenging the status quo. There were times when Paul did not invoke his rights as an apostle. We see Paul talking about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Then down in 15, But if I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. And the, and the, the situation that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 9 is largely about getting paid by the Corinthian church. Paul said, as an apostle, I should have been paid by you guys while I was ministering to you. But I didn't. And I'm still not. And the reason for that, Paul says, is, again, I would rather endure anything than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. His eye was always with that What will further the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so in terms of what happened in Corinth, it was not taking money from those people. Because for them it would mean perhaps they thought they owned Paul. Well, here in Philippi, Paul is 
not making use of his rights as a Roman citizen initially for the furtherance of the gospel because he wants the insanity to die down as opposed to amping up. And if he starts crying out, I'm a citizen, I'm a citizen, all Hades is going to break loose most likely. So Paul makes a choice not to invoke his rights as a citizen in order to save his own skin. He essentially takes one for the team. Unjustly. Paul was focused on how his particular rights either furthered or hindered the progress of the gospel. And let it be known, there are times when we cling to our rights that we hinder the progress of the gospel. We do. Paul did not want this little church plant to be ravaged by violence. And so he did not invoke his rights initially. But now that he's being set free, he does invoke his rights because he wants the message to be vindicated so that the church can be safe. Slightly different circumstance, slightly different response. The government's not concerned about the truthfulness of the gospel in all of this. The government is only concerned about the maintenance of the public order in all of this. It's not a partner with him in the gospel, but he has to deal with them. So Paul says things like Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and that those that exist have been instituted by God. There's a We don't like that sometimes. Because sometimes the government doesn't see things the way that we see fit. That's why there's that little word there, or that little phrase. Let every person be subject. If you're in agreement with the government, you don't have to think about being subject. We heard from First Peter chapter five, uh, sorry, chapter three earlier in the reading of the New Testament, and it talks about honoring the king. Why do you have to be told to honor the king? Probably because you think the king is not honorable. And when you think of the Caesars that were in charge during the life of Peter and Paul, many of them were not honorable. But Peter doesn't say, free game on the king. He says, honor the king. Sometimes we struggle to honor the authority above us because we somehow mistakenly think that they're supposed to be partners with us in the gospel and they're not. Paul understood this. I think we have, we, we can grow in our understanding of, of all of this. So the gospel, on the one hand, produces a concern for justice within a society because God is just. Okay? But on the other hand, the gospel does not produce activists in search of a cause. 
It does not produce people who tear the fabric of society. And so we live in a tension between the world we want to see and the world that really is. And while we pray for and perhaps work for a world that isn't, we don't try to tear down the world that is. And that's really hard. Because we want to see change. But we have to do it in a way that grasps these commands to honor and to be subject to and and I think Martin Luther King Jr. had it pretty good I mean, in terms of understanding how someone who goes by the name of Jesus is supposed to walk this road, and there are some who don't quite get that. And they try to burn down the house, destroy the fabric of society in the name of justice, and become unjust themselves in the process. You see, we see this situation where the the magistrates come to Paul. They realize that they're in big, big trouble. They apologize to Paul. And what does Paul do? He let mercy triumph over judgment, to borrow a phrase from James chapter 2. He didn't burn down their house. He didn't destroy Philippi because Philippi was wrong. Do you understand that? There was an injustice that was perpetrated. But Paul did not use that injustice that was perpetrated as an excuse to destroy a city. And the people who live there. Sometimes we can be right and do the wrong thing. Because we seek an excessive justice. Paul pursued peace in the face of injustice, even though he was wronged. And so, don't expect the government to be a partner in the gospel. Don't place a responsibility on the government that belongs on the church. The government is about justice. The government is not about mercy. And so much of the confused thinking I hear from Christians on the internet is they keep asking the government to be the church. They're not interested in the gospel, and so their mercy will destroy people as opposed to Reclaim and redeem people. On the other hand, expect to give up some of your rights at times for the furtherance of the gospel. There are times it's better to be wrong than to demand what's right. So our relationship with the government is not a partnership, but rather this sort of tense tension that it exists and we have to walk in. Secondly, 
Jesus forms unlikely partnerships through the gospel for us. How did this whole mess begin? Well, we see Jesus beginning this mission with a new partnership in the gospel. He brings Paul and Silas together. Okay, Jesus did that. He's the one who worked that. Silas was not someone who was in Antioch, but Silas was one who had visited Antioch with all of the stuff from the Jerusalem council. And so he's not supposed to be there from an earthly perspective. And yet here's the, this is the guy that Paul is going to join together on this second missionary journey. And while they're on the way, they meet this other guy, Timothy, a young guy who has a Jewish mom and a Gentile dad. He doesn't fit in really in either place. But they may, but he becomes a partner with them as part of this, this church planting team that's going to go, they think, into Asia, but they end up going to Macedonia because Jesus sends them there. And we see that things in Philippi started well. Conversion of Lydia. Gospel moving within her household. But now we see that Paul and Silas are going to have to leave town so that the protests aren't resumed. They're Roman citizens. They have a right to be in that town, a Roman colony. Who are you to kick us out, they could say. But Paul and Silas, in the interests of peace, decide to leave. Paul reflects upon this in his letter to the Thessalonians, which is where he's going to go next, Thessalonica. Uh, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul's still all about the gospel. He's still going to bring the gospel to places like Thessalonica. He's not going to be, uh, you know, cowered down. He's not going to be shy and reticent. He's going to, he was continuing to be bold, even though there was conflict in Thessalonica, but he left Philippi. Paul and Silas loved the city of Philippi by leaving the city of Philippi, even though they weren't the problem. The problem was the syndicate that owned the slave girl. That's exactly why I had Marty read from 1 Kings 18. Ahab meets Elijah. And Ahab says, You troubler of Israel. He's calling the godly man the one who troubles Israel. And Elijah the prophet reminds Ahab that he is the one, in fact, who is troubling Israel because he invites the wrath of God by worshiping false gods. In other words, the government was blaming the church for its problems. But its problems were caused by the government. We see the same thing. The reason why Augustine wrote the book City of God was because all of those Germanic tribes that were pushed out from all those 
aggressive uh, tribes from Asia went down south, sacked Rome, and a lot of people said it's the church's fault. We've turned away from our gods to worship that one God, and that's why this is happening to us. And so Augustine says, no, it's because of your own wickedness this has happened to you. We are not the troubler of Rome. You are. So there's always been that tension. Paul leaves. But he does not leave Philippi without a gospel witness. You see, there's a church there now. And all the focus has been on Paul, and really the focus shouldn't be on Paul. And so Paul leaves. Okay? They care about this new church, and so when they leave the prison, the first thing they do before they leave town, or really the only thing they do before they leave town, is they visited Lydia. They made this stop on the way out of Philippi, precisely because they care about this new church, because they care about the people in it, because now they're partners with those people. And we're going to see when we get to the letter uh, to the Philippians that they continue at times to support Paul financially. And so they're partners in Paul's ministry. Okay? That's not all they are. But we'll hang on. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them. They encouraged them in their new partnership. Because not only were they, they were part, not only were they partners with Paul and Silas and Timothy, but they were also partners with one another in the spread of the gospel in Philippi. There's work to be done in Philippi. Paul can't do it. Silas can't do it. So Lydia and the jailer and the other people who have been converted in the power of the Holy Spirit in this city of Philippi are the ones who are partnering together in order to accomplish the mission of God. Do you understand where I'm going with this? But let's think about this for a moment. A businesswoman, maybe a slave girl. We don't know if she was actually converted. But a jailer. These were people with very different backgrounds, very different experiences, and yet the same one gospel was able to reach each of them. It addressed who they were and what they were about, and it gave them a new, greater vision for who they were and what they were to be about. It united them through faith in Jesus Christ, and it united them for the mission of Jesus Christ, which continues through His church. The church in Philippi was a diverse church, and it represented the community of Philippi so that it could reach the rest of Philippi. These people were intended to be partners with one another in the gospel. So do you know your partners? The people who are sitting around you. They're supposed to be your partners in all of this. That's how the, the church thrived. That's what the church was called to. It was not a uh, leadership 
exclusive club where, you know, officers of the church get to do all the ministry. No, it's supposed to be a partnership. All the people in the congregation utilizing the gifts that God has given them and being stewards of those gifts for the furtherance of the gospel. But let's hear this. Paul encouraged them. If they're watching Paul and Silas leave town, they probably need to be encouraged because they're discouraged. They're probably wondering, how are we going to make it without Paul? How are we going to do this thing? They're frightened. They're overwhelmed. They're not sure what's going to go on. Are we the next ones who are going to be forced to leave town? They needed to be encouraged. We all need to be encouraged at times. Most likely, Paul was teaching them the facts and the implications of the gospel for daily life. And we need to be communicating to people to a, to a greater degree the facts of the gospel and its implications for life. For instance, Titus 3, we mentioned it last week, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work. I told Amy this week, because I read Titus this week, I wish I had a buck for every time he said good works. I could take Amy out for dinner. <laughs> That's a dominant theme in Titus's, the letter to Titus. Encouraging them to be zealous for good works. Romans 8, If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so encouraging them that that suffering is not a cosmic accident. Suffering is not incidental. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten you, but actually, you're an heir. It's evidence of your standing with the Father. It is not evidence against your standing with the Father. And so you have to understand suffering rightly or you will go completely off track. And so Paul would probably say something like that to them in the midst of all of this. And as he's going to say in Philippians 3, he may have said something similar before he left town, that that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is saying to to them in that letter that I don't want to know just the good stuff about Jesus. I want to know everything about Jesus and I want to have fellowship with Jesus and everything and that includes in His sufferings. And the good news is that He's going to raise me from the dead. So I don't have to worry about if these sufferings take my life because it's hidden in Christ. And that's good. So hopefully we're encouraging you. Hopefully we're reminding you of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ and encouraging you for those good works. Whether it's Sunday school We're intending to give you our theology in Sunday school so that you understand the gospel you're intended to be sharing. So you can answer some of those questions about what do you believe from your coworker? 
What do you believe about fill in the blank? Okay. So trying to help you understand what the Westminster Standards say about these things so you can answer. And so that you can also be encouraged when you face struggles as well. It's not just for them, it's also for you. But it's not just for you, it's also for them. You get my drift. Community group. We should be encouraging one another to live out our faith in the midst of a world that doesn't always like our faith. Seminars. We've had the smart money seminar. We've uh, been encouraging people with ho- in terms of hospitality lately. We're going to have an uh, evangelism seminar this fall to encourage you, to equip you, prepare you for these things. Our men's and women's ministry are meant to equip you and prepare you. And right now we're rethinking how we do men's ministry so that we can do that better. Partner together. We're intending not just all of you to be lone rangers, but to be partnered together. So I'm sorry I'm taking so long, but part of what I'm trying to do is communicate vision. It takes time. Part of our vision is for you to be partnered together with one another, inviting people into our life together, visiting Overton Reserve, okay? Not just two or three of you. It wouldn't be nice if there was like a steady stream of us. Hi, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? What can I pray about? We want to be your church if you need us. That kind of thing. So as I think about this text, what kind of comes to me is this notion, embrace the partners God has provided for you in the place He has put you for the mission He has given you. Those three things. Embrace the partners God has provided for you. Again, grace. He's given you these partners. You haven't earned them. Here they are. Enjoy them. Embrace these this, these gifts of God to you. These other people who have a similar mission to you. So embrace the partners that God has provided you. Embrace the, embrace the other people of this congregation. Because, you know... Just like in Philippi, they're not just like you. Some of them are engineers. Okay, most of them are engineers. <laughs> Some of them are teachers. Some of them are stay-at-home moms. Some of them are kids. Some of them are musical people. We're different folks. And that's okay. Embrace the partners who can reach the people that perhaps you can't. It's good. In the place where he's put you, you don't have to embrace partners somewhere else. You need to embrace the people God has 
put around you where he's put you, which is Tucson, Arizona, Oro Valley, Marana area, Northwest. This is where he's put you. Embrace the partners that he's put next to you for the mission that he's given us. Bearing witness to Jesus, the Savior of sinners. That's really what it's about. But we're not going to bear witness unless we have partners. And the place we bear witness is the place he's put us. Well, Andrew Brunson is not alone in that Turkish prison. I mean, he is, but he isn't. In addition to Jesus being with him, which is the greatest of all, there are many churches that stand by him in prayer, that, that fast for him, just as they previously partnered with him for the gospel, the evangelism of Turkey. They partner with him now and for his freedom from prison, his unjust imprisonment. It's important for you to know who your partners are. Many Christians somehow think that the government is their partner and is supposed to do the work of the church. But the government is really in the justice business, not the mercy and grace through faith in Jesus Christ business. So know who your partners are and who they aren't. By that faith in Christ as Savior, we become partners with people around the world and, and more importantly, right where we live. So we are a partner with church planters like Charles Garland. We are partners with our missionaries like the McMahons in Zimbabwe. We're partners with them and, and we pray for them and give them resources. But we're also partners right here with our fellow congregants. They might not be the ones that you wanted. I can't understand why anyone would want me to be their pastor. But they are the ones that God provided for the bringing of the gospel to Tucson, Arizona, to the United States, and to the ends of the world. So I want to leave you with this thought. Are you a partner or a spectator? I need partners. That's what I need. I don't need spectators. Because there's a lot of work to be done here. Let's pray. Father, sometimes the task can seem overwhelming. I'm sure those group of brand new Christians in Philippi were just overwhelmed with the fact that Paul left and they had to do it alone. And yet, the fact that we have a letter to them reveals, by your grace, they did it. A church was built. And we're grateful that we know about that church. And it's evidence of the fact that you drew those people together and you used them mightily to, to change lives in a city that seemed opposed to the gospel. So, Father, help us to have a similar faith as we think about Overton Reserve, as we think about Oro Valley, as we think about downtown Tucson, the places where we work and everything else, that you are a God who can do exceedingly more than we could ever ask or imagine. 
Help us to love one another well and to work together side by side for that mission, for that purpose, in this place you have put us. Help us to see the fact that we're here is not just sort of a coincidence, but is a fact of your purposeful work in each of our lives so that we can be thankful and responsible. And so continue to change us, to grow us, and use us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.